falling more in love with Jesus. Let's begin our study. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Revelations chapter 2. This morning, we're going to continue our study on the seven letters to the seven churches, which is found in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. In these two chapters, the Lord Jesus gives seven different messages directed towards seven different churches located in Asia Minor. The Lord Jesus was concerned for his bride, the church. And so he sent her these personal love letters to encourage her, comfort her, and correct her. Now, last week, we began our study by looking at the first letter written to the church of Ephesus. And if you recall, we saw that in this message, the Lord Jesus took the time to commend the church of Ephesus for their convictions, for their discernment and for their labor. The the church of Ephesus, they hated what was evil. They tested false apostles and they labored exhaustively for the Lord. And so they were a good church. They had good works. At least that's how it seemed on the outside. But in verse four of chapter two, the Lord Jesus had one thing against the church and it was a big thing. The Lord told them, nevertheless, I have this against you. That you have left your first love. What happened to the church of Ephesus? Simply this. Everything became a routine for them. They were going through the motions. They had good works. They had sound theology, sound doctrine. But they neglected their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And last Sunday, we talked about how as Christians, there can be a danger and the danger could be that everything becomes a routine religion and we neglect our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what happened to the church in Ephesus. And so the Lord gave them an exhortation. He shared with them how to fix The problem that they had. And this is what the Lord told them. He said, remember where you have fallen, repent and do your first works. In other words, the Lord told them, remember how things used to be when you loved me, when you were excited about me. Go back to those days. It's as if the Lord said, hey, stop in your routine and in your religion and go back and get your first love. Fight for your relationship. And so last Sunday, we looked at the letter to the church of Ephesus. Now, this morning, we're going to continue and we're going to look at the second letter Of the seven, the letter to the church of Smyrna. And so if you have your Bibles to Revelations 2, we're going to read from verses 8 through 11. Everybody got their Bibles open. Amen. You got your outlines out. Amen. You got your pen in your hand. Amen. No, man. (laughs) Well, if you don't have a pen, make sure to get one, borrow one or bring one. Next Sunday, for you can take more notes. Let's begin. Revelations 2, 8 through 11. And this is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Amen. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. 
Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. And you will have tribulation 10 days, excuse me, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And we'll pause our reading there in verse 11. And so this morning we want to examine the letter to the church of Smyrna. Now, the Lord begins his letter, his message, by declaring to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right. And if you recall, last week we said that the term angel here in these two chapters is possibly a reference to the pastor or the spiritual leader of the church. The term angel simply is the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. And typically in the Bible, it refers to a heavenly messenger, but occasionally it refers to a human messenger. And it would seem, according to the context, that on this occasion, it's referring to a human messenger, possibly the pastor, the spiritual leader of the church. Now, the city of Smyrna, the city we're going to be talking about this morning, it was located about 35 miles north of Ephesus, of the church of the city we studied last Sunday. It was really the next major city on the Roman road. You know, all these seven cities that we're going to be talking about, they all were connected by a Roman road. It was pretty neat if you look on it on a map. You had Ephesus, then there was a road from Ephesus that led to Smyrna, and from Smyrna to Pergamos, and the next city, and the next city. And then so it was the next city on the Roman road from Ephesus. Now, Smyrna was a very beautiful and a very prosperous, wealthy city. You know, it it was so beautiful that it had the nickname, the crown or the ornament of Asia, the crown of all that area, Asia Minor. You know, it's kind of neat when you think about that this city was nicknamed the crown of Asia And at the end, the Lord promised the church the crown of life. And so there's a little bit of play on words in that verse. Now, although the city was very beautiful, very wealthy and prosperous, historians tell us that the city was also very wicked and immoral and evil. They loved worshiping idols so much so That in the year A.D. 26, the city built and dedicated a temple to Emperor Tiberius, who was the emperor at that time. And from that day forward, the city was very passionate and very loyal to worshiping the emperors of Rome. Smyrna was considered really the the center of emperor worship for all of Asia Minor. And what would happen if you didn't worship Caesar, and if you didn't confess him as Lord, and if you didn't pinch a little incense at his altar, you would suffer severe consequences, even you would be put to death. If you refuse to worship Caesar and confess that Caesar was Lord, you would be persecuted. Now, why do I take the time to mention that to you? Well, that was a little problem for the Christians in Smyrna. And it was a little problem for the Christians 
throughout the Roman Empire. You see, the Christians, they had the conviction that Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. If you read Acts chapter 10, verse 36, Peter tells Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, Jesus is Lord of all. I'm sure when Cornelius heard that for the first time, he probably was a little confused. Because as a Roman centurion growing up, serving in the Roman army, all his life he heard that Caesar was Lord. But Peter came to his house and said, Cornelius, you had it all wrong. Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is Lord and he is Lord of all. How many of you this morning know that Jesus is Lord of all? Amen. And so in Smyrna, the the, the Christians, they had a little problem. Everyone was worshiping Caesar. Everybody was confessing that Caesar was Lord, but they were confessing that Jesus was Lord. And because of it, they were being persecuted. They were being imprisoned and they were even being put to death. And so Smyrna is what we like to call the persecuted church. And it was to this persecuted church that Jesus addressed this second letter. And this morning, I want to study it with you. And I want to share with you four things concerning it. I lift up my hand in five and I said, no, we're doing four. (laughs) I had to put my thumb down real quick. Four things concerning the letter to the church of Smyrna. And so if you have your Bibles open and if you have your outlines with you, follow with me. And let's look at the first thing. The study, the outline is very similar to the study, to the outline that we looked at last Sunday. The only thing that is different is that the church of Smyrna was given no word of correction by the Lord. No word of correction. In other words, nothing was wrong in the Lord's eyes in this church. And he gave them no word of correction. But the rest of the points are the same. The outline is similar. And so let's look at the first thing, the description of Christ. The first thing we see in this letter is the description of Christ. The Lord describes himself in two ways to the church of Smyrna. First, if you look with me in your outline, he describes himself by saying, these things says the first and the last. The first and the last. Now, this description is very, very important. And it's filled with so much meaning. And let me share with you a a couple of things the Lord is trying to teach us. First, the Lord is teaching us that he is the eternal one. That he has a eternal nature. In other words, he's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He is always there. It's the eternal one. He will always be there. There's never a time he didn't exist. And there will never be a time that he won't exist. And so the first thing the Lord teaches us is that he's the eternal one. Now, the second thing, and and really This follows the first point. The Lord is teaching us through this description that he is God, that Jesus Christ is fully God. You see, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 44, verse six, God, Jehovah, used this same description to describe himself. The Lord said, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. Now, why is that description of the Lord so important? The first and the last. Well, because many people teach and believe 
that Jesus is not God. Many cults, many movements, they teach that Jesus is not God. And what's sad about it is that these cults, these movements, they profess to believe in the New Testament. They profess to follow the teachings of the scriptures, and yet they claim or they say that Jesus is not God. But the truth is, that is a lie. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is the first and the last, the eternal one, almighty God. You know, Jesus He's not simply a good moral teacher, a wise man, a miracle worker or a prophet, but he is God almighty. How many could say amen to that? Amen. We believe in the deity of Christ. You know, every every once in a while, I get an opportunity to, to talk to some of those people who don't believe that Jesus is God. And, you know, whenever I talk to them, I already know the verses they're going to show me. I kind of even kind of pointed out to them, hey, you're going to show me this one next. You're going to first show me John 1, 1, and then you're going to go to Colossians, and then you're going to go to Revelations 3 and, and whatnot. And so I let them build their case and share their verses. And at the end, I, I kind of share with them, listen to this. The Bible teaches us first that Jesus possesses divine attributes, that Jesus was all powerful, that Jesus was all knowing, that Jesus was all present, that Jesus was immutable, that Jesus is eternal. So that's my first argument. And I take them through scripture after scripture. Jesus possesses divine attributes. Secondly, the Bible teaches us that Jesus received divine worship. The Gospels, approximately on 10 different occasions, teach us that people worship Jesus. Jesus didn't rebuke them. Jesus didn't stop them. But he had no problem receiving worship. Now, that's interesting because in Matthew 4, verse 10, Jesus said that only God is worthy to be worshipped. And yet Jesus received worship on approximately 10 different occasions. So that's another argument I tell them. And then thirdly, I tell them that Jesus was ascribed or called divine names and titles. There in Romans 9, 5, Paul calls them the eternal God. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter calls him God in John 20, 28. Thomas calls him God Um, in Acts 20, 28. Paul calls him again God. Um, First John chapter five, verse 20. John refers to him as God again over and over again. We can be here all morning. And so by looking that Jesus possesses divine attributes, that Jesus received divine worship and that Jesus was ascribed divine names and titles. The conclusion simply is that Jesus was God. And so you build a case for the deity of Christ. Cults, they will only show you a few verses and they twist them to their demise. But we don't only have a few verses, but we got all the verses. Jesus is God. And he tells us himself here in verse 8 that he's the first and the last. Now, the second way Jesus describes himself is by saying that he is him who was dead and came to life. And so not only does Jesus tell us that he's the eternal one, But he also tells us that he's the resurrected one. Now, think about this, okay? Jesus was directing this message towards the persecuted church, to those Christians who are being imprisoned, beaten, and ultimately killed. 
And so Jesus presents himself, describes himself as the resurrected one because he wants the church at Smyrna to understand that they don't have nothing to fear. Amen. That he conquered the grave, that he took the sting out of death and they have nothing to fear because they serve the one who is the resurrected one. And I'm sure when the church of Smyrna were reminded of that, they took great comfort because they were being imprisoned. They were being beaten. Some of them were being killed as we're going to see. And yet they had no worries because they served the resurrected one. And this morning in the same way, the Lord reminds us that he's the resurrected one, that he conquered the grave, that he took the sting out of death and we have nothing to fear. How many of you know that this morning Jesus is alive? Amen. You know, sometimes when we come to church, sometimes as Christians, we act as if Jesus is not alive, but as as if Jesus is dead. Sometimes that's our our kind of our attitude, you know, that sometimes that's the appearance that we give that Jesus is dead. But the truth is, Jesus is alive in this morning. We come to celebrate that our savior conquered the grave. That our Savior took the sting out of death. And this morning, we can celebrate and we can rejoice and we can cheer because Jesus is alive. And we need to be reminded of the resurrection. You know, Paul told Timothy, don't forget that Jesus, the son of David, rose from the dead. You know, you don't need Easter to celebrate the resurrection. But the truth is, every day as Christians, we celebrate the resurrection, the death and resurrection. Because we have the promise that because he lives, we shall also live. And this morning, Jesus is alive. And this morning, because he is alive, we have hope. We have assurance We have confidence that at the end of the day, we will also live and reign with him. Amen. Amen. Let's give a praise offering to the Lord. So how does the Lord describe himself first as the eternal one? Second, as the resurrected one. Now let's look, amen, my brother. (laughs) You kind of caught me off guard, but I was like, oh my goodness. (laughs) The second thing we want to look at is the word of commendation by Christ. The word of commendation. After the Lord described himself to the church, now he takes the time to commend them. If you don't understand that word, all it simply means is the Lord took the time to tell them, They're doing a good job to slap them on the back, to give them a word of praise. And in verse nine, the Lord commended them for two things, for two things. First, he commended them for their spiritual wealth. And this is a good one. This is important. So listen to this. Their spiritual wealth. The Lord told them, I know your works, tribulation And poverty, but then the Lord continued and said, but you are rich. So the Lord first said that they're in poverty, but then the Lord said, you are rich. What a contrast. What is the Lord saying? Well, this is what the Lord is saying. That materially, they were poor. And the word the Lord uses in the Greek is a very strong word. It really means Absolute poverty. This is the idea. The church in Smyrna had nothing materially. And many 
believe it was because of the persecution that they were going through, that they were ostracized by all the businesses and by all the wealth of the city. And so the Lord said, hey, you're you're poor, earthly speaking, materially speaking. But then the Lord said, hey, but that's okay because you're rich spiritually. You're you have spiritual wealth. And you know what? That's all that matters. Material riches, they are passing. But spiritual riches are eternal. True wealth is spiritual wealth. And so the Lord, first he praises them for their wealth. And it wasn't because they had nice buildings and nice sound systems and nice chairs and air conditionings. That's not what the Lord focused on. Not those riches, but the Lord was focusing on their spiritual riches, on their spiritual wealth. And I would encourage you to learn from this. True wealth is spiritual wealth. That's true wealth. Your bank account does not impress God. Ouch. Your car that you drive, and there's nothing wrong driving a nice car. There's nothing wrong having a comfortable bank account. Don't misunderstand me. But all I'm saying is God does not see things like man sees things. God sees the spiritual. God sees not so much how much we're making an hour But God sees how much time we're spending with him in the hour. God is not concerned so much with how much we're investing in a house or a car, but how much we are investing in the kingdom of God. True wealth is spiritual wealth. And I just would encourage you, don't focus on trying to build up your kingdom. Focus on trying to build up. The kingdom of God, because the truth is everything on this earth will burn, but it's only what we do for Christ will last. And that's why the Lord tells us in Matthew six thirty three, seek ye first. What does he say, family? I know, you know, the verse, the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. Don't worry so much what others are saying or how much money you're making or if you need to live a little humbly. That's okay. That's healthy. But focus on what the Lord says. You know, I heard this quote and it just really blessed me. And the brother said, what matters the frown of the world if we have the smile of God? What matters the frown of the world? What matters? What people think, what matters if in the world's eyes, you're not successful, if you're successful in the eyes of the Lord. And that was the church of Smyrna. They were materially poor, but spiritually they were wealthy. And that's all that mattered. And this morning, are you spiritually wealthy? This morning, are you storing up treasures in heaven? Family, I would encourage you to do so because at the end of the day, that's all that's going to last. Amen. How many could say amen to that? It's good to hear stuff like that. It's good to understand where we should be investing our time, our energy, our resources. You didn't even have to go to a bank and make a meeting and have a counseling session with an investor but i already told you what you needed to know now just go and do it and me too amen now the second thing the lord commended or praised this church was for their spiritual persecution and you kind of got to look closely to find this one but continually in verse 9 the lord says and i know the blasphemy Of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
And so the Lord mentions their spiritual wealth. And secondly, he mentions their spiritual persecution. The church in Smyrna were being persecuted. And interestingly, the Lord tells us that they were being persecuted by the Jews. They would have been persecuted by the pagans, by the Gentile citizens, but also they were being persecuted by the Jews. They were being slandered and talked bad against by the Jews. And it's so interesting that the Lord tells us that these Jews thought they were Jews. They were so-called Jews. But the truth is, they were a synagogue of Satan. What is the Lord telling us? That the Jews, they thought they were doing the works of God by persecuting this church. They thought that they were honoring God and bringing glory to God. They were very zealous for God. And they thought that by blaspheming and talking against this church, They thought they were doing something good. But the truth is, the Lord said that they were a synagogue of Satan. They weren't doing the work of God. They were doing the work of Satan. And when I read that, this is the first thing I thought of. As Christians, it's so important that we be careful how we use our tongues. It's so important that we watch our words and we watch how we speak against the church, how we speak against Christians or the leaders or pastors of the church. Because oftentimes we can say something and we can think that we're doing the work of God, that we're being used as an instrument of God. But sadly, in all honesty, We can be being used by Satan and we can be an instrument of Satan. And we got to be careful. We got to make sure that we're guarding our tongue. And we got to make sure that we use wisdom before we speak. Amen. You know, it's so important that we think before we talk. I remember my mom used to always tell me that. Think before you talk. Because what do we do most of the times? We talk before we think. Good job, class. (laughs) We talk before we think. But we need to use wisdom and to watch our tongues. And so the Lord, he commended this church for their spiritual wealth, and for their spiritual persecution. The Lord wanted the church to understand that he was aware of their situation, that he knew that they were being persecuted, that he was conscious of their pain, of their struggles, and that he was with them. You know, when I think about that, I get so blessed. To know and understand that the Lord is conscious of my pain. That the Lord knows my situation. And that he's with me. That I'm not alone. The church in Smyrna needed to know that they were not alone. And this morning, maybe you need to know that you are not alone but the savior says i know i know your situation i know your sickness i know your struggles i know your temptations i know your trials i know your battles i know and i'm with you and i'm ready and i'm willing to help you amen and so the church in smyrna lord commended them for their spiritual wealth and their spiritual, exor- um, excuse me, their spiritual persecution. Let's now come to the third thing that the Lord shares with them. And it's what we 
like to call the word of exhortation. The Lord now exhorts the church, encourages them, challenges them. And here in verse 10, the Lord exhorts the church in two ways. And don't miss this because it is going to be a blessing. First, the Lord exhorts the church to be fearless, fearless. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. So first, the Lord exhorts the church to be fearless. The church in Smyrna were being persecuted and the persecution would continue. But the Lord tells them, don't be afraid. Stop fearing. There's nothing to fear. Be fearless. That's a word that this church desperately needed to hear. Be fearless. You know, many people in this world, they're slaves to fear. How many of you know many people struggle with fear? Amen. Maybe this morning someone in here is struggling with fear. We struggle as humans with the fear of death, with the fear of failure, with the fear of loneliness, with the fear of poverty, with the fear of rejection. The list goes on and on. Many find themselves slaves to fear. And Satan, that's one of the devices that he uses to enslave people. Fear, fear of the mind, fear of thoughts, fear of the heart and of the emotions. People are enslaved with fear. And yet the Lord, knowing that throughout his word, Over and over and over from the Old Testament to the New, the Lord tells his people that they have nothing to fear. The Lord tells his people, be fearless. Isaiah 41 10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Over and over. That's the message the Lord is always giving to his people. Fear not. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I will strengthen you. Don't fear. I will help you. I will uphold you. I will keep you. And that's the message And that's the word that the Lord gave to this church. And this morning, that's the message. That's the word that the the Lord gives to us, his church. Do not fear. You know, this morning, what fears do you have? This morning, what are you afraid of? And I know many of us. Struggle with some type of fear. I know because I talk to a lot of people who come to church and I interact with a lot of young and a lot of old. And so many times the problem is fear that people have. You know, for the past two months, I've been counseling a young man who has the fear that the Lord doesn't forgive him. And he doesn't sleep at night. He doesn't rest. He doesn't eat because the enemy is oppressing him with fear. And this morning, there might be someone who is being oppressed by fear. Maybe the fear of the unknown. Maybe the fear of being alone. Maybe the fear of losing a job. I don't know, but the Lord tells you, And the Lord tells me, do not fear. Do not fear. You have nothing to fear about because the Lord is with you and he's with me. And this morning, 
The Lord wants to free us from fear. The Lord wants to free us from this oppression that maybe we're going through. The oppression of fear. And all you have to do is allow the perfect love of Christ to cast out all your fears. For John tells us in 1 John 4.18 that perfect love casts out fear. You want to know what the remedy for fear is? It's the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. That's the remedy for fear is reminding yourself, telling yourself, meditating that Jesus loves you. And perfect love casts out fear. This morning, we have nothing to fear because Jesus loves us. Amen. Amen. You know, when I was a child, whenever I got a little afraid at, at night or of the dark, You'll never guess where I ran to. Anybody? My parents' room. You know, because when I was with my parents, I just had no fear. Because I knew they would protect me. and I knew that they were going to watch over me. And I knew that they loved me so much that they wouldn't allow anything to happen to me. And this morning, if you're struggling with fear... You need to run not to your earthly parents, but you need to run to your heavenly father because he loves you. He's going to protect you. He's going to watch over you and he's not going to let anything happen to you. And if he does, it's because it's for your own good, but he's going to sustain you and keep you through the trial. Amen. Perfect love casts out fear. And so the Lord told this church, be Fearless. Now, secondly, the Lord told them to be faithful. He exhorted them, be fearless. Secondly, be faithful. Continue to read with me. Verse 10, the Lord says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you have tribulation 10 days. And this is the word of exhortation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. And so the church was being persecuted. The persecution would continue. And the Lord exhorts them, be fearless, be faithful. Now, if you study church history, you'll learn that this exhortation by the Lord was put to practice by the bishop of Smyrna, the pastor In the year 156, and the pastor was named Polycarp. And this is a very famous story of church history. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. And Polycarp, he was arrested by the city officials. And he was taken to the theater in Smyrna. A theater that it's estimated would have held anywhere from 20 to to 30,000 people. And as as Polycarp was taken to this theater, the governor approached him, and the governor told Polycarp, curse Christ, and I will release you. Curse Christ, reject Christ, blasphemy, deny Christ, and I will release you. And church historians tell us that In spite of the persecution, in spite of the danger, Polycarp responded with these words. And they're very well-known words. 86 years I have served Christ and he has never wronged me. How can I curse my king? 86 years I've served Christ. I've stayed faithful to Christ. And he's never done me wrong. He's never failed me. He's never let me down. How can I I curse him? How can I blaspheme? How can I deny him? And church historians tell us that when the governor heard that response, that he was infuriated. 
And he ordered his soldiers to put Polycarp to death. Now, I'm sure, and church historians don't tell us this, but I'm pretty sure that as Polycarp breathed his last breath, that he was reminded of the words of the Lord that the Lord gave to the church of Smyrna. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. And just like the Lord said, that's what Polycarp did. He was faithful until death. And I'm sure that this morning and for all of eternity, Polycarp is going to be wearing the crown of life. Amen. And in the same way, that's the exhortation the Lord tells you and tells me. Be faithful. Be faithful until death. You know, as Christians, every day we face persecution. We face opposition. We face temptation and struggles and trials. And a lot of times as a Christian, there's a desire to give up, to give in, to throw in the towel. Oftentimes, the emotions, the excitement is not there. The excitement of Sunday, sometimes on Monday, is long gone. And there we are, facing the world, facing the flesh, facing Satan and his army. And a lot of times, we we go through opposition in times of persecution, in times of struggle, and there's... Oftentimes, a small desire to throw in the towel, to give up, to give in, to be defeated. But this morning, the Lord tells us, he encourages us, and he exhorts us, be faithful. Be faithful, and I will give you the crown of life. And this morning... That's the word that the Lord wants to exhort us by. Be faithful. Brother, sister, young person, whatever you're going through, whatever you're battling, whatever you're being tempted by, just be faithful. Stay committed. Stay focused and be faithful. Do you know that today in the church, faithfulness and commitment is a dying characteristic. It's all about emotions. That's the movement. There's an emotional movement going on in the church today. And this is that movement. If I feel like it, I'm going to serve the Lord. But the moment I don't feel it, I'm going to serve myself. And so many start strong And there's a lot of excitement, a lot of jumping and shouting. But over time, once the wear and tear of the Christian walk presents itself, right away, they throw in the towel and they give up and they give in. And yet the Lord is looking for Christians who are going to be faithful, Christians who are going to be committed and dedicated To Jesus, regardless of what you go through, regardless of what you're facing or what you're struggling with, be faithful. Purpose in your heart to honor Jesus. Good times and bad times. Times of blessing and times of scarcity. Be faithful. And if you're faithful and if you keep close to the Lord, one day you'll be rewarded with the crown of life. Amen. You know, every time I read that verse, be faithful until death, I think of my mom because that was her testimony. She was faithful until death. And she was battling cancer and her body was dying and shriveling away. And instead of cursing the Lord, she was blessing the Lord. Like never before. And instead of leaving the Lord, she 
drew closer to the Lord. She relied on the Lord. She depended upon the Lord. And she was faithful until death. And as I saw her and as I witnessed all these things, she just inspired me and motivated me like never before to follow in her footsteps. And now I am called to be faithful until death because I know that in my life, I'm going to go through a lot of hardships, a lot of trials. I know I'm going to shed more tears. I know my heart is going to get broken again. I know this. That's the Christian walk. It's hard. It's difficult. But in spite of all those things, I must purpose in my heart to stay faithful. Can't give up. I can't give in. I can't let the guard down for a moment. But I need to be faithful and committed. And one day I'll receive the crown of life. And one day I'll be with Jesus. And that's what we need to be family. We need to be fearless and we need to be faithful in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And I would encourage you, family, be faithful. Be faithful. Be in it to win it. Obtain the prize. Remember that before you receive the crown, you're going to receive the cross. Know that. But you'll only have to carry the cross for just this lifetime. And for all of eternity, you're going to be wearing your crown. So be faithful with the cross and the Lord will reward you with the crown. Amen. Amen. And so the third thing we see is the exhortation by Christ. The Lord exhorted the church to be fearless and to be faithful. Now, let's finish up and we're going to end with this. Verse 11, the Lord gives a promise to the church. He ends with a promise and this is the promise. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, if you recall, according to 1 John 5, 5, overcomers are all those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Genuine believers. And so the Lord promises all genuine believers that they will not be hurt by the second death. Now, the question is, what is the second death? What is it a a reference to? In the book of Revelations, the second death is referred to on four occasions. And the Bible teaches us that the second death is spiritual death. Eternal separation from God. In Revelations chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, this is what we read. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so the second death is a spiritual death. It speaks of eternal separation from God. You see, there's what we call the first death, physical death. And that's the death all of us will experience if the Lord should tarry. And physical death is the separation of the spirit and the soul from the body. And everyone experiences physical death if the Lord doesn't rapture us first, believers. But the second death, spiritual death, it's separation from God for all of eternity. It's spending eternity separated from God. It's spending eternity in the lake of fire. And only those who reject Christ and refuse to put their faith and trust in Jesus as their personal Savior, only those will experience the second death. And so this is 
what the Bible teaches. You could either be born twice and die once, or you could be born once and die twice. But the choice is yours. And this morning, if you're here, and if you've never accepted Christ into your life, and if you haven't repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in the finished work of Calvary, I would encourage you to do so. Take this serious. Don't play games or don't postpone this decision because listen to this. If you think the first death, if you think physical death is something to be feared, friend, it's nothing in comparison to the second death. If you are afraid of physical death, oh, it's nothing in comparison to spiritual death. Spiritual death, an eternal separation from God can only be described with one word. Hell, that's what it is. To be separated from God for all of eternity. And listen to this. This morning, if you're here and you refuse to give your life to Christ and you experience the second death, listen to this and you're not going to like it, but that's okay. Hell will be worse for you because you heard the gospel and you rejected it. And so it's going to be worse for you because for all of eternity, you are going to be telling yourself. I could have. Not been here. I could have not been here. I could have been in heaven, but because of my pride, because I hardened my heart. Now I have to spend eternity separated from the presence of God. And if you've never given your life to Christ, I pray that this morning that would be the day and that you would give your life to Christ. Because the Lord promises us that those who overcome, those who place their faith and trust in him will not be hurt by the second death. Amen. Isn't it so comforting to know that this morning as believers, we don't have to fear how we don't have to fear being separated from God because the Lord has promised us in his word that we will not be hurt by the second death. Amen. I once read a story and I'm going to finish with this of a small boy during the time of Roman persecution. The small boy was led out with his father to an arena. And the boy and his father were going to be killed by wild beasts. And as they were in this arena, the cages were open and the wild beasts appeared. They, they came out and they began to approach the boy and his father. And with all this going on, the son, the boy, he turned to his father and he said, Father, will it hurt? Is it going to hurt, father? The father placed his arm around his son's shoulder. And this is what he said. Perhaps for a brief moment. It's going to hurt for a brief moment. But he that overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And as we come to the end of this letter, the Lord tells you and he tells me. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. May we be fearless. May we be faithful, committed to Christ. And we can rest assured that when the time comes for us to stand in front of the judge of all this, all the earth. Almighty God, 
We will have nothing to fear. We will have nothing to be afraid of because he's going to know us by name. And he's going to receive us with open arms because of what his son did on the cross of Calvary for you and for me. And until that day comes, we are called to be faithful, to be committed. And now more than ever, we need to serve and love Jesus with all our hearts. Because very soon, we're going to see the king. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's finish in a word of prayer.